Hello. Welcome and thank you for joining us and listening to our podcast, The God Beyond the Bible. Our podcast is released weekly each Friday. The content of each episode is based on the questions and curiosities we all have about God and the Bible. Many of our topics are considered taboo in the minds of the mainstream church. You will find our discussions to be, I think, refreshing and often far from traditional. But we don't just skirt around these complex issues, but confront them head on, and not in the way you're used to hearing them discussed on typical Christian talk shows. I'm Alan Rowland, creator and host of The God Beyond the Bible. As of the launch of this podcast, I've been a pastor for more than 35 years. My co-host is my daughter, Trayson, and our engineer, co-producer, is my daughter, Tabitha. Our mission is to encourage our audience, along with us, to open our minds to the reality that God is simply too big to be fully explored or experienced by the reading and studying of a single ancient work. In short, the Bible's not the sum of God, and to think this is to limit what He has done, is doing, and what He will do in our future. So with introductions made, thank you for listening, and let's dive into the topic of the day. And welcome fellow seekers and casual and cautious listeners to our weekly podcast at God Beyond the Bible, the podcast made by seekers and for seekers. This is episode 50, which leaves us just two episodes away from that anticipated milestone of 52, which means we will have completed our first year of podcasting. All right. And what about shout outs? Our shout outs today are to Anthony. And to all of our followers on Spotify. Yeah, Tracen was telling right. me that we're getting up there close to 500 We are. We're subscribers at about, or... We're at about 470 followers on Spotify, and we appreciate all of you guys. That's, Definitely. And, that, and that's not counting the SoundCloud listeners and... No, all, or all, our all website. It's... So again, thanks to all our listeners, and especially to that growing list of regular listeners. Uh, some of you have listened faithfully from that very first somewhat anxious episode that released on January 4th, the year 2019, the year of our Lord. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Last week was episode 49, of course, and it was on stress, namely the increase in stress that has proven to occur during the holiday season. If you have figured out how to lessen the holiday-related stress or possibly you figured out how to eliminate it altogether... Let us know how you did it. We want to hear from you. Yes, and, and I did get a I did get a uh, 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 text on that from a friend of ours that I'll remain nameless, and he said how appropriate. And he was telling about having family for two weeks before Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> All of that. So it, it was. He said it was. It was very good. And so, by the way, if you have figured that out, how to lessen stress, you could write a book, and it'd be a <laughs> number one bestseller yeah, for bet. a year. So today's episode, number 50, is dedicated to a study on the celebration of Christmas, the customs and traditions associated with the celebration, and also a little about the origin of some of those customs and traditions. Well, let's begin with the word Christmas itself, its meaning and origin, as one would expect from a celebration with deep Catholic roots. The word Christmas is actually Christ Mass. And uh, or a mass service dedicated to the birth of Christ. Mm -hmm. There is no directive in the New Testament writings that we have access to today that instructs us to celebrate the birth of Jesus, nor is there any indication that the early church under the direction of the apostles even did so. It was actually Pope Julius 
who sometime between 350 and 400 AD implemented the celebration of the birth of Jesus. It took almost 300 years for the Mass to be widely recognized or celebrated. It was then celebrated by attending morning Mass and then followed by a lot of overindulging in food and drink that some would say more closely resembled Mardi Gras than the way we celebrate Christmas today. Well, just as an indicator of how out of hand the celebration had gotten, and I didn't know any of this till I started studying mm-hmm. this. I didn't realize uh, one of the writers that I used it talked about it. The historian said it was a raucous, a, a raucous brawl or something like oh, that. Oh <laughs> As an indicator of how out of hand the celebration had gotten in the early 17th century, a wave of religious reform changed the way Christmas was celebrated in Europe. Now, can you imagine the way Christmas is celebrating being the top political? No. Of the day, you know, the agenda of the day. When Oliver Cromwell and his Puritan forces took over England in 1645, they vowed to rid England of decadence. And as a part of their effort, they canceled Christmas. Well, that would make that'd be a Christmas show. The day Christmas would cancel. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it? Anyway, they canceled by popular demand. Charles II was restored to the throne, and with him came the return of the popular holiday. The Pilgrims, with their Puritan roots, actually outlawed the celebration in America for a number of years in the late 1600s. For instance, in Boston. Anyone exhibiting the Christmas spirit was fined five shillings. <laughs> By Christmas spirit, do you mean? Uh, no, it just it, that's that was the law. Anyone exhibiting the Christmas spirit, and I guess like you're celebrating Christmas. Uh, th- that's what I was wondering if we meant like Christmas spirit. Know, I don't has, think it was drinking. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think it was drunk. I had heard, and his name just escapes me, but the founder of Jamestown. Ah, uh, I can't remember. But anyway, inside oh. Jamestown, he did not hold that. John, he did not uphold. What was Pocahontas's? Smith. John, John Smith. Well, yeah, I should have yeah, remembered that. Was, that was a hard name, yeah. though. It's such a difficult but, name. Um, yeah, he actually, inside Jamestown, he did not uphold that law. Yeah, because he, he actually reported that they had a had a quiet, mm-hmm. well, peaceful well Christmas peaceful Christmas. They sure did. Right. Okay. So you must have read the same article I, I did. I think that. I did. Okay. Okay. So the next question. Why December 25th? Why not? (laughs) As most of us have probably heard or read, it's very unlikely that this date on our modern calendar coincides in the least with the actual birth of Jesus. While we don't have much to go on as to the actual date of Jesus's birth, we are told that the shepherds were minding their flocks on the hills surrounding Bethlehem, Judea, a practice that cultural and historical experts agree probably wouldn't have taken place in the dead of winter. Okay, so I have to pause you guys here. Okay. Because... I started asking the question because I get sidetracked really easily. Mm-hmm. And so I started searching out when they think Jesus was most likely born. And I came across this really interesting article where this guy had sat down and calculated it to the best of his ability. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to read this little bit to you guys. Okay. He said, the Jews are excellent record keepers. So... The temple service in David's time was divided into 24 courses. And Luke says that Zechariah was of the course of Abahiah or Abijah, however you want to pronounce yeah. it. And he served around the time of Pentecost, which is around May or June for us. 
and he actually goes on in the article. And the reason you're referencing Zechariah because Zechariah was was the one in the temple, right? He, when Jesus was dedicated. No, no Zechariah okay. was the father of John the Baptist. Oh, John the Baptist. Okay, yes. um, I got another guy. Okay, I'm glad and you cleared that up. I'll hush. Luke seems to indicate that Elizabeth was conceived pretty. That Elizabeth conceived John the Baptist pretty quickly upon Zechariah's return when he was struck silent right, okay. in the temple. So. She hid it for five months, which puts us in about late November. Then Gabriel visits Mary to give her the news that she'll conceive and tells her that Elizabeth is already in her sixth month. No, that is true. And that's in the scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that puts us in late December, maybe early January. But then Mary comes to visit Elizabeth and she speaks as though she knows she's already pregnant. And if you go back and read in the book of Luke. Right. She does seem to speak like she already knows. And she stays there for three months until John the Baptist is born. So now we're in about March. And that would suggest on the timing scale that Mary's about three months pregnant, which means that Jesus would have been born around six months later, which means that his birth would have probably been in late September or early October. And I didn't know how to get I did read that, that it's believed most scholars agree that it would have been probably in September. And probably uh, there was one other reason I can't even remember. I didn't jot it down of why they why they thought that. Another thing was they said that most shepherds also have their flocks out in the fields from April to October. Mm. And then they, and these were out on the hills, the mm-hmm. in the hills and stuff, it's indicated. And they go into the valley naturally as yes. it turns colder. And I think their climate's pretty much like ours, isn't it? I mean, they're in the northern hemisphere. Yeah, when you start getting close to the mountains, it gets colder much yeah, faster. that's what I was saying. And thinking. they also said that aside from the Roman census that's mentioned, that an October birth would have fallen in line with the autumn festival, which was a big deal on the Jewish calendar. And that it wasn't uncommon during festivals in Jerusalem for the people to spill over into nearby towns like Bethlehem. So a little more on why, it, who, I don't know whose turn it is. Is it Tracy's? It's mine again. Okay. Part six there, Tracy. So it was Pope Julius who sometime between 350 and 400 AD implemented the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And it took almost 300 years for the mass to be widely recognized or celebrated. Six. But uh, and then after that, it's believed that Pope Julius chose the date to take advantage of and absorb some of the other winter celebrations that had already existed, such as the winter solstice. And if I've got that right, ain't that the date, the shortest day of the year mm-hmm. has occurred, and then the light begins to increase mm-hmm. after that time. And also the, something called the Saturnalia celebration, which is the name, which as the name indicates, it recognizes the Saturn. Yes. God or goddess. So. And did you know that during that Saturnalia celebration that their whole empire was like turned upside down? It said that slaves became the masters. They did. Peasants were in command of the city. For one day. Yeah. Businesses and schools were also closed, you know, so everyone could join the fun. But oh. I thought that was neat. And food and drink were plentiful. Yeah. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> it's also believed that this midwinter date was chosen, not as an attempt to coincide with the actual birth of Jesus, but that the world was basically an, um, an agricultural society and winters were long and hard. <clears throat> Excuse me. And people needed a celebration to lift their spirits and give them hope until spring when natural foods began to appear and crops could be planted. So let's go ahead and end this segment, if y'all don't have any more, with a little Christmas trivia question. What New York institution was organized as a result of 
the Christmas celebration gone bad. And it was New York City, by the way. Yes. New York City Institution. Okay, listeners, welcome back to part two of episode 50 of God Beyond the Bible, the podcast by Seekers and for Seekers. Today's, sorry about that deep intake of breath, but <laughs> today's topic is Christmas. We're discussing its origin, the controversies that have always been associated with the celebration, and the traditions and customs that have been adopted and invented to celebrate the holiday. And before we go right on into this and answer that trivia question, let me say, if the sound is different, hopefully it's better. We're working with a new soundboard. We got a response from a listener. And I had noticed myself that it seemed like our volume was decreasing and yes. you were having to turn your devices up. So we'll see if this solves it when we listen to it. We don't hear it either until right. it no. actually is, is broadcast. So anyway, so that brings us up to the... Yeah. At the close of segment one, we left you with a Christmas trivia question. The question was, what New York City institution that still exists today was organized as a result of a Christmas celebration gone bad? The answer, the NYPD. Well, that's what it's called today anyway. <laughs> I had absolutely no I idea when that I read was, this. This was really cool to me. So history tells us that the early 1800s was a period of class conflict and turmoil in the U.S. And in the U.S., unemployment was high and gang riding by the disenchanted classes often occurred during the Christmas season. In 1828, the New York City Council instituted the city's first police force in response to a Christmas riot. This was also instrumental in changes to the way the upper class celebrated the holiday. Now... Christmas was not observed as a national holiday until it was declared so by Congress in June 26, 1870, and I forgot what president that was. In fact, it is a credit to the, Ameri the Americans of this era, that is the late 1800s, to having actually reinvented Christmas, if you will, from a celebration, I'll get straight here, <laughs> from a celebration that was enjoyed by the elite causing class division and even violence. And it was changed into, it started transforming into a family-centered day of peace and nostalgia. Yeah. In fact, it is best-selling author Washington Irving with his series of books titled The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon that is accredited <laughs> for reinventing the way the holiday would be celebrated in America. Has anybody read any of those? I, I haven't, haven't, but I really want to go and I read guess, this I guess I'm going to have to now. now, yeah. His book is a series of stories about the celebration of Christmas in an English manor house. The sketches feature a squire who invited the peasants into his home for the holiday. In contrast to the problems faced in American society, these two classes mingled effortlessly. In Irving's mind, Christmas should be a peaceful, warm-hearted warm -hearted holiday bringing groups together across lines of wealth or social status. Irving's fictitious stories portrayed its characters as recapturing the true celebration of Christmas, with what he depicted as ancient customs, which caused the reader to believe that by following these customs depicted in the stories, he was recapturing the spirit of Christmas. When if the fact is, guys, Irving's romantic depictions were all created <laughs> in his own mind. The ancient holiday customs and celebrations his fictional characters enjoyed weren't based on any real events. They were all a creation of the author's own mind. Well, and however... It's about this same time that an English English author, 
<laughs> We're a little tongue-tied yeah. today, guys. Bear with us. By the us. name of Charles Dickens created the classic holiday tale, what? The, the Christmas, Christmas Carol. The Christmas Carol. In conflict with how the holiday was actually celebrated, with distinct social class lines between the haves and the have-nots, much like Irving's tale, Dickens' story conveyed the message of the importance of charity and goodwill towards all humankind. The story also struck a powerful chord in the United States, showing the benefits of all classes of society, of society celebrating the holiday in peace, love, and charity. Mm-hmm. Another possibly unintended result of the story, and yet it had a, so- a significant social impact, was that the story caused its readers to become aware of the way children were thought of and treated. Up until this time, children were not allowed to have any input into the operation of the family. Unlike society today, children, especially those born into upper-class families, were cared for by live-in nannies and housemaids who followed strict codes concerning the raising of children. Others were sent to boarding schools where they only returned home for a few weeks each year. And Dickens' portrayal of children is making a true contribution to the family and society as well. With real thought and emotion, emotions tended to cause society to begin to make the Christmas celebration more child-friendly and oriented, amending many of its customs toward children who up until this time we're more of a possession than a family member. And, and that's really true if, if you look back. Uh, the truth is, these two authors and their works of fiction have pretty much set the standard concerning the celebration of Christmas in America as well as the rest of the world. When you think about it, almost every popular and successful work, whether in print or on the screen, no matter what the plot or who the characters are, has followed this pattern of hope, love, charity, and miracles as their overall theme concerning the celebration of Christmas. Yeah. I mean, even the popularity of Santa Claus can be attributed to his portrayal of peace and goodwill towards humankind and the elevation of children from that of being mere possessions or appendages to status of important co-contributors co- co- <laughs> to the family unit. Considering all the division and controversy between people today, it may be more important than ever to have a season promoting generosity, peace, and love among mankind. Amen. And with that thought, let's conclude part two, regroup, and come back with segment three. Okay, fellow seekers, welcome back to part three of episode 50 of God Beyond the Bible, the podcast by seekers and for seekers. Today's topic is Christmas and the traditions and customs, namely our American traditions and customs that are connected to this annual celebration. And let me say again, if we have a few little technical problems with this, we've been understanding that our volume has been getting lower and we're working with a new board, a new system. So if you get a little bit of distortion, a little bit of something every once in a while, just bear with us. By the next episode, we'll have it Yeah, have it we'll get out. everything yeah. worked out. Okay, but back to the Christmas discussion. Okay, well, we spent the first two parts of this episode giving some insight to the origin and evolution of our American celebration of Christmas. We learned that two fictional authors, Irving and Dickens, probably made the single greatest contribution influencing the way we celebrate Christmas more than anyone else in history, including religious institutions. Did you guys find that pretty amazing? I did. I did. Yeah. So before we continue with part three, what do you think 
considering the direction the celebration has taken up until that time, has Irving and Dickens' contribution to Christmas been a good one? Well, of course it I has. Think so, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine. I never thought of it as even in America where it was just a real class thing, the have and the have-nots. Yes. You know, the people of wealth and means celebrated while the people were left behind to the degree that it was actually causing riots, riots and clashes. I mean, think about it. We, I mean, but I'm well, I'm not going to go there. But I mean, with now we've kind of got it so commercialized now and <laughs> commercialism and some of that mean spiritedness seems to be coming back if you do too much. Yes. I mean, you hardly ever. What was it a few years ago when the, wasn't it some people got killed crashing into a Walmart store or something, you know? It was on over Black, Black Friday. I was going to yes. say, yeah. Black Friday and got trampled. Go yeah, on, I'm thinking. Crazy. Anyway. Okay. So in, in this final segment, we're going to look at a few <clears throat> things surrounding the actual birth of Jesus that we can glean from the testimony of the authors of the New Testament. So let's begin by pointing out that only two of the four gospel accounts in our modern New Testament make any real contribution to our knowledge and information concerning the birth of Jesus. They are Matthew and Luke. Mark doesn't comment on the actual birth at all, but actually begins his account with a prophecy from Isaiah and then moves right on to John the Baptist and his announcement of one coming who's greater than himself and straight into Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. So John's gospel account concerning the birth of Jesus is summed up in the phrase, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And did you guys know that? Did you ever pay any attention to that in the Bible that Mark or John, neither one? I actually I mean, not Mark. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Steve and I were doing I'm our s- Bible reading and I went, wait. Yeah, Mark and John. Why, I had Mark that right. and John. Okay. Why does Mark, because we went from Matthew, you know, to Mark and I went, Mark doesn't even say anything. <laughs> he doesn't even does John, really mention. Really. So heeding the lesson from our episode and acknowledging the humanity in the Bible mm-hmm. Let's first recall a little of what we know about the two men who did give some detail of Jesus' birth. Okay, well, first we have Matthew, who was originally known as Levi. And if you didn't already know or his name didn't give it away, Matthew was of Jewish descent. Here's a point in case of why seeing the humanity is important. Matthew begins his genealogy with Abraham, as any good Jew would do, since Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish nation and receiver of their national covenant. And let me say something right here. It's not really Christmassy, but the whole idea of this is you got to understand, the Jewish folks really thought it was just all about them. Yes. yeah. And they weren't concerned with anything that was going on anywhere else and how it they, affected anybody else, but just how it affected them. They very them. much felt like they were the elite and chosen mm-hmm. over everybody else. That's right. So... If we take notice, we'll see that Matthew's narrative is from Joseph's point of view. Did you guys know that? I didn't. I had to go back and look. When to I see read if that. I was right. To I see if I was right. Read, I was yeah. okay. So, in other words, he tells Joseph's side of the story leading up to the birth of Jesus. And once I read that and went back and read the story, it's really apparent. It's clear, that, isn't yes. it? Yeah. So, it's Matthew who gives us the political climate. And the role that King Herod played, along with the wise men from the East, or the Magi. It may be proper to reason that Matthew chose to use Joseph's side of the event, because Matthew's Jewish culture would lean toward the man's role concerning spiritual issues, and would diminish or downplay the role a woman may have played. This was just part of his culture. So, see why it's so important to see the humanity? Mm -hmm. Sure is. Now, Luke, however, everybody remember Luke? The Gentile doctor who held no official religious position or title, 
but presents himself as an investigative reporter and historian. It is this Luke who gives us the greatest detail and account of events surrounding the birth of Jesus. Another case in point of the necessity of recognizing the author's humanity is the fact that Luke has no or had no predisposed aversion to recording the account from Mary's point of view. It's reasonable to think that Luke based his account on an actual interview with Mary because he includes her personal thoughts and emotions with phrases like, and Mary pondered these things in her heart. Have you ever yes. thought about that? Yeah. How would he have known she pondered those if he didn't speak to Mary? Right. And Mary said, you know, that was something that I really... was on my mind. I had that on my yeah. mind. And that indicates he had some access to Mary's personal thoughts on the matter, which could only come from Mary herself. And let me add something here. Luke's genealogy... We talked about Matthew's genealogy. Uh-huh. I didn't mention Luke's genealogy. Do you know where how it goes? Does anybody look at it to see how it goes? Mm-hmm. All right, Matthew's genealogy. Remember, I said started with Abraham. Yes, and goes up to Jesus. Luke's genealogy starts with Jesus and goes all the way back to Adam. As I knew oh, it was wow. Adam to Jesus, but the I most never extensive really single genealogy in the Bible. Wow, that that he does. So I just thought I would throw that in. Tabby, I think you're eight. Okay. Well, let's talk um, about one of the greatest mysteries and the source of many errors and misconceptions concerning an event connected with Jesus's birth. And this is one that's always been interesting to me. It is the topic of the wise men or the magi, as the Greek word calls them. This Greek word magi, translated in our Bible as wise men from the east, is actually a title which means royal astrologers. Most kings utilize these men um, who were educated in stargazing and planetary movement. And that was really common. I mean, Solomon had every king, but these were not Jewish, remember? These folks were right, from right. somewhere somewhere from the east. And, they, and did you find that royal astrologers? Mm-hmm. Did you find that interesting? So, first of all, I think we're to assume that they were not local, since Matthew indicates <laughs> they traveled a great distance from some eastern region. Right. Matthew says they came following a particular star. Well, there are at least three misunderstandings concerning these individuals and their mission. The first is that there were three of these magi. Have you always seen that at the Christmas play? (laughs) Three wise men. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. The first misconception or misunderstanding is that there were three of these magi. Some claim we draw this conclusion because of the three different gifts. However, Matthew does not give a specific number of the magi. Nor does he tell how large a company of men were with them. Animals, supplies, whatever accompanied them. Now, keep in mind, they were royal astrologers. I didn't know that until I did this study. Yeah. I didn't know what magi meant. But it. Uh, but keep in mind, they were royal astrologers, which means their mission was sponsored by a king, which means they would have had sufficient provisions and traveling assistance. And it may have, you know, we always see... In our minds, we see they bring this little tiny box of myrrh. And <laughs> yes. little tiny, you know, guys, it says, if you read that, and we're probably going to read it, but it says they opened their treasure chests. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does that indicate? They had a lot with them. It sure did. Okay, so misunderstanding number two. The star hovered over the manger and was visible to the common masses. The truth is the star seemed to be more of a natural phenomenon that took a stargazer to recognize it. It didn't lead the magi or wise men to the manger at all. Instead, if you read Matthew's account, who wasn't present for the event, but seems to have gotten his account from Joseph, as we mentioned earlier, if we read what Matthew wrote, he indicated that after the magi's encounter with King Herod, 
the star again became visible and led them not to the manger, but to the house where Joseph, Mary, and the baby Jesus resided. And before we, and before we, so let me qualify why I wrote that. I wrote that because they went to Herod inquiring where the child uh-huh. was. Mm-hmm. So the star had become obviously not visible at this point. So now, now Tracen's going to pick up and read what Matthew wrote after after they had their interview with yeah. King Herod. So let's pick up in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 9 through 12. After this interview, the wise men went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped at the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Two things I want us to point out about that. They entered where? The manger? No. No. They entered the house and they opened their treasure chests. And so, you know, it wasn't a little box (laughs) that we always see, probably. The third misunderstanding. Not only did the Magi not come to the manger, but to the house, but their arrival may have been as much as two years after Jesus' birth. In Matthew's account, the only one that speaks of the visit of the Magi, he informs us that when the Magi left to return to their own country by a different route and did not return to inform Herod that they had found the child, as King Herod had requested of them, that Herod became furious and he ordered every male child under the age of two years old in and around Bethlehem to be killed. Now, Matthew states that Herod based the age of two years and under on the time the Magi told them they first saw the star. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, this is another case of where we know God was operating and communicating with cultures and people on earth outside the Jewish religion. We don't know what the religion or worship system of the wise men from the East was, but it is clear that they were anticipating the Messiah more intensely than the Jews themselves who seemed to be missing these signs of his arrival. We have to remember that the collection of writings we have today that we call the Bible is merely from one cultural and religious group and is written purely from their perspective and preserved by them as a national history. And of course, that group is the nation of Israel. And I just, I wanted to throw a couple of things in here because I had started a couple of years ago reading more into the cultural side of the birth of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And it really opened up some stuff for me. One of the things is that we always refer to the inn, the stable, and the manger. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, at that time in Bethlehem, guys, there weren't inns. There wasn't a hotel, you know, on the street corner that you'd go stay at. Joseph and Mary would have gone to a family member's house, probably one of their distant cousins. And these houses were multi-story. That first story was where you kept your animals and then you lived in the higher stories. Hmm. So the conversation would have probably gone something like Joseph asked his cousin, hey, can we stay here? Mary's pregnant and she's tired and we need something, you know, somewhere warm to stay the night. And Joe's cousin's going, you know, Joseph, if you'd have told me six months ago that y'all were coming, (laughs) but there's no room upstairs. But if y'all want to sleep down here with the donkeys, that's up to you. And the other thing is, um, a lot of scientists have done studies on what the star could have been that the Magi saw. Right. And a lot of them think that it was actually a rare convergence of Jupiter and Venus. 
they converged in the sky and they actually made one light and it happened around 2 BC. And they think that Matthew's statement about the reign of Herod would suggest that it would have probably been close to that time. So they think that actually might have been the star that they saw. And the other thing is, um, and I didn't notice it for a while, but a lot of people believe that the reason that Matthew mentioned the wise men was that he was really implying more to the Jewish people about Christ's birth being a royal birth. These magi would have come because this was an important birth in their nation. And the shepherds that were mentioned by Luke was probably because he was trying to portray that he was a commoner, just like all of his followers. Well, hmm. that's pretty, that was pretty good. Okay. And yeah, and let me just say something about you. Just talking about, you know, we say, well, we know when Christ's birth was. No, you got to understand there's discrepancies between the Gregorian calendar mm-hmm. and the Jewish calendar <laughs> yes. and the calendar that we have that we use today. And you got to remember when we went from, think about this for a moment, this won't make sense at first, but there was a year lost in there. You yeah. went from, there was no zero. You so you went from one, one BC to one AD. Right. right. There was no zero in between there. So it's believed that, like Tracen said, by the, if you look at the dates and the stuff we can date, the stuff of Herod, the, the appearance mm-hmm. of that of that star and all of that, well, Jesus could have been, there's three or four year discrepancy there that Jesus could have been born. And let's be realistic. Him. You didn't go to the hospital and get a birth certificate no. that had your year of birth. <laughs> you know, it was kind of iffy. Right. And as we've pointed out many times on God Beyond the Bible podcast, we have some clear indicators in the Bible itself that God was interacting with more people and cultures than just the Jewish folks. I mean, that's what I take away from the Bible. I mean, they're over here studying the stars and they're Mm -hmm. watching it. And and it's kind of like, I don't want to downplay or or, or be hard on the Jews, but it's like they're like, that's nothing. It's some kid born over here. And here's these guys traveling. That are going, this is it. This is the sign that we've been waiting for. Let's go. And you, the other thing I have to wonder, where did they get that information? How did they know to look for this particular yeah, star? Know, because it's not—it's not in our Jewish Bible. Uh-uh. No, it's not in the Judeo-Christian no. writings that we know of. And so, what did they have? How did they know when they saw that that was exactly that what, what they what had been waiting meant. for? Yes. That, that, that's what. Well, we hope you found today's topic enlightening, and uh, that you and those you love have the merriest of Christmases. And the, in the and that the coming new year, I'll, maybe I won't be stuttering the next new year, <laughs> and that the coming new year turns out to be the best year of your life so far. Absolutely. And may God's grace, peace, and love be on you, be in you, and flow out from you. And again, Merry Christmas from all of us here at God Beyond the Bible. Did you enjoy listening to God Beyond the Bible? Do you have an idea for an episode? Connect with us today. Visit our website at godbeyondthebible.com, all one word, or send us an email at email at godbeyondthebible.com, or you can visit us on Facebook. Just type God Beyond the Bible into the search bar.